Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the Ecosev podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. The work of the Ecosiv Institute as a whole significantly depends on the generosity of supporters and listeners like you. So if you enjoy this podcast and value the many other projects that we are engaged in, please consider making a donation at ecosiv.org donate. For today's episode, Ecosiv's communications manager, Ebony Bailey, speaks with designer, activist, and academic Julia Watson. Julia is a leading expert on indigenous nature-based technologies, as profiled in her new book, Low Tech, Design by Radical Indigenism. She also teaches urban design at Harvard's Graduate School of Design and at Columbia Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. Low Tech has been featured in Architectural Digest, The Washington Post, The San Francisco Chronicle, The Guardian, CNN, and is an Amazon bestseller for architecture and design. Ebony and Julia talk about nature-based technologies for climate-resilient design, incorporating indigenous technology in the context of environmental displacement, why the Western model of conservation has in some ways failed us, and about the symbiotic relationship between indigenous knowledge and spirituality. And now, here's Ebony and Julia. We are here with Julia Watson. She is a designer, author, and academic who specializes in nature-based technologies for climate-resilient design. She teaches urban design at the Harvard Graduate School of Design and at Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. And she is the author of the book, Low Tech, Designed by Radical Indigenism. Welcome, Julia. Thank you. Awesome to be here. So, Julia, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and how you became involved in this sort of research that intersects design with ecological knowledge? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, currently, I've been a professor for the last 12 years teaching design and technology at Columbia and, and, and RISD and Harvard and Rensselaer and a bunch of different schools. But um, I'm originally actually from Australia and I moved here 14 years ago to come to Harvard to study spiritual landscapes, which was a passion of mine for a really long time, um, to study specifically like how Indigenous peoples understand spirituality in the landscape as a means of conserving biodiversity. And I had been uh, doing a lot of mappings and understanding that a lot of our global biodiversity sits in these indigenous lands which are often have um, a spiritual association and it's actually called the shadow conservation network it's like an informal system of conservation and i realized that there was no one really looking at this field um, as a means of understanding how to you know save um, biodiversity and, and empowering um, indigenous peoples to steward the lands and so that's um why i came to the u.s and then uh before that, I had been traveling around the world since I was about 20 years old, visiting indigenous communities um, and you know, national parks and spiritual landscapes, just trying to piece together this puzzle that ended up becoming low tech. 
One thing that immediately stood out to me about the book was actually the title of the book, Low Tech. So normally when we think about something that is low tech, we think of something simple or not so sophisticated. But the thing about this book is that it kind of turns that concept on its head. Can you tell us a bit more about the title of the book? Yeah, um, yeah, Low Tech, L-O-T-E-K is a word that I made up for the title of the book. And, and in the vein that you explained, you know, a lot of these systems I think have been uh, unconsidered to this point in time because they were thought of as low technology as opposed to high technology. And, and there's this primitive association with low tech, um, but low tech, L-O-W-T-E-C-H is actually in the same vein as high tech. It comes from like manufactured processes and mechanization and is a lineage of industrialization. Um, low tech, T-E-K, it's joining that concept, but with the TEK, which stands for traditional ecological knowledge. And that's the knowledge that indigenous people accumulate and pass down for generations through songs and, and stories and oral communication. And it's knowledge about your surrounding landscapes. It's practices of how to interact with your surrounding landscapes. It's the actual technology as well and it's also the worldview that that technology and that society's understandings of the world is contained in and it's actually incredibly sophisticated and that's like the misunderstanding and that's why there's a play on that word in the title because a lot of people think that these types of technologies which can be bridges or or rice field terraces or they can be floating islands because they're perhaps built by indigenous people or um, they're using all natural resources. They're, they're like a low form of technology, but they're actually super sophisticated, sophisticated to beyond the point of what most designers or what designers at this point can design because they deal with incredibly complex ecological relationships like using fish, algae and bacteria to be the energy source for a biological process to treat sewage in a wetland rather than using a manufactured industrialized wastewater treatment plant. So it's trying to, yeah, exactly what you said, flipping that whole concept on its head and bringing awareness to this idea of ancient wisdom, enabling like the next generation of green, clean, sustainable technology. And as you were just talking about, indigenous knowledge is essential for a sustainable world, but at the same time, indigenous groups are among the most vulnerable groups that are affected by climate change. What can you yeah. say about that relationship? I mean, it's funny because I was doing a discussion and, and lecture and workshop with a, a woman from that. She's a Haudenosaunee. Um, woman who she's, uh, you know, it, the subset of the Haudenosaunee is a, is a many different North American Indigenous First Nations groups. Um, and she was, you know, up there giving her lecture and she turned around to the audience and said, you know, this whole sustainability movement, I just don't understand how you can be talking about sustainability without talking about Indigenous knowledge. And I turned around to her, I said, I just wrote a book on this. And this is exactly what the underpinning of this whole book is that, you know, the term sustainability came from the great law of the Iroquois. Uh, we have this whole concept of sustainability built upon these under indigenous understandings, yet we never reference indigenous knowledge in our contemporary 
understanding of sustainability. So back to the, the question that you were saying, the vulnerability of these communities. I mean, most of these communities are living in pretty remote conditions. They don't have, um, you know, the, the modernized, uh, mechanized, industrialized lineage of development. So they're using their natural resources. They're building using their um, local materials. They're building really low embodied energy systems. They're, they're basically constructing really innovative technologies just using their landscapes around around them and they understand those conditions in their landscape around them but because of that they're kind of in a place where often these innovations are happening because of scarcity so they're at the forefront of like a, a drought hitting and they're having to figure out what type of pastoral systems or what type of migration can alleviate those extreme conditions of drought or frost or flood. And um, so it's often uh, these indigenous communities who are who have been dealing with these extreme conditions for a really long time or are in some of the most vulnerable places and exposed to the contemporary impact of climate change. And so the fact that we're not taking cues from the people who have been dealing with these types of conditions and crises for a really long time is, you know, uh, is a misunderstanding on, on uh, contemporary modern society's behalf that we're just missing the point and missing the opportunity and also missing, uh, missing out on even understanding the potential of biological nature-based technology. You talked a little bit about migration. Um, I noticed that migration was a theme in your book, the migration of people and also the migration of technologies. And in today's world, there are a lot of situations that force people to migrate from their homes. There's displacement, environmental displacement, there's socioeconomic reasons, and a lot of these reasons that force people to migrate from their homes and settle into other homes. So thinking kind of about indigenous technologies, how can we incorporate the practices of indigenous technology in the context of diaspora? Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because in the conclusion of the book, I do talk about this concept of conservation refugees even. And part of the reason why we have lost a lot of biodiversity um, is because the national parks movement, which began in, and, and, and the Western framework of conservation, which began in the US, really began with the removal of indigenous peoples from their lands. And, and, and that migration or, or that sort of moment of removal exacerbated this, the current circumstances that we found ourselves in. So it, it really is a very strong thematic in the book, especially it plays out in the chapter or the section on deserts. Um, there's a there's a community called the Turkana who live um, around Lake Turkana and Tanzania, who their patterns of migration have been the one, and it's a very traditional cultural pattern of migration, traveling between food sources and, and different environments from winter to summer, has been the only thing that's kept this community um, really resilient in the face of um, drought that happened for a very long time because they kept on migrating and, and the way that they migrated by corralling 
their animals as they migrate through the desert, they've also spontaneously reforested that part of the world. And what was what's really interesting about that case study is that this community had been blamed for deforestation for a really long time. And their government had tried to force them to, you know, to stop these cultural practices. Western science had written all these articles about um, their impact, their ecological impact that was destructive upon the environment. And in the last 15 years, there's been this shift of people actually doing real studies and understanding that this community and the way they keep on migrating is the one thing that's actually reforesting the desert. So there's this um, you know, and, and and this particular is a community is a subset of the Takana. Originally, this uh, population was two hundred thousand people. Only twenty thousand people remain migratory pastoralists, mi- migrating pastoralists, because the rest of the community stopped migrating, went into government encampments, and most of them are actually now dependent on. Uh, food sources coming from um, non-profits to assist them with uh, survival. So they're in, they're in like a really, really precarious um, situation now. And another thematic of the book is, yes, the potential of these technologies to migrate, to assist, to deal with the similar circumstances um, that that technology was developed to, uh, in response to in other locations. So. In New York, we were hit by Sandy and we have, uh, you know, been thinking about what is, what is our response if we were going to have another um, incredible storm event and flooding event. And some people's responses are to fortify and build big walls around the city of Manhattan. Another response is to think about how do you bring in soft technologies that would absorb, that might be also productive. So it could be incredible aquaculture systems that also introduce wetlands and different type of shoreline soft systems. And we could look at somewhere in northern Peru, like the the Waruwaru, or we could look at Indonesia and the Sawatambak, different technologies around the world to migrate to different parts of the world to deal with those crises. Because right now we don't have a huge toolkit of technologies that are nature-based to deal with all the different situations that we're confronting. So yeah, the final, you know, the big chapter, uh, the big the big realization after doing this huge compendium of work is that, that I noticed these simultaneous innovations of the same technologies popping up all over the world in communities that have clearly never had any form of communication, but they're arriving at the same technological solution to deal with the environmental problem. But there was minor adjustments um, to like materials or introduction of different types of species into the systems. So there's clearly like an optimal response to different climatic events. And there's a great potential to, to think about the migration of these types of technologies into other communities that haven't evolved that, those types of responses to assist them to deal with the crisis that they're confronting as well. Yeah, exactly. So when you say there's a potential for migration, uh, the migration of these technologies to enter into other communities that haven't evolved into that response, you kind of, it kind of, to me, sounds kind of like a prevention program almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was actually in Mozambique last week 
working in a city called Bira that was firstly ground zero for Cyclone Ida last year, where they lost 80% of their housing and all of their agriculture because the storm hit right before the harvest. And it was also, you know, uh, a decade ago, the, the ground zero for the civil war uh, that happened. And so it's really a city that's in recovery still from, from multiple seriously traumatic events. But we're a year out, they're a year out of Ida now. And you would commonly think that you would transition from a disaster relief to a, to a development model to, to, to get things going. And they're, they're trying to do that. But there's, they've been experiencing flooding and storm events increasing for years. It's just that Ida was incredibly unprecedented with 200 kilometer hour winds that they had never experienced anything like that before. But they know they've they've had had storms and and flood events that have forced communities to be removed and relocated and 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 large communities to be displaced for a long time and the model of disaster relief we're seeing that it's not a disaster anymore if it happens every single year it's it's that's preventable and we have to understand that prevention is really going to be a way forward for these communities to be able to really uh, respond post uh, one of these events. And that can be, you know, multiple different technologies where it's like an intertidal technology that allows for tidal surge, um, but also aquaculture and food systems. So if, if uh, you know, if there's a flood, you're not completely dependent upon uh, food sources that can be wiped out with water. So diversifying, um, you know, food sources, introducing soft systems that are both resilient for storm surge flooding, but also resilient in terms of um, food supplies and, and uh, water scarcity. So it's just like these, most of these technologies um, actually allow for, to achieve one uh, to achieve multiple different conditions rather than one condition. So the, the current model for disaster prevention, if we were going to think about storm surge, would be to build a levee. And that levee does one singular thing. It's a single purpose infrastructure. If we're really thinking about nature-based technologies being used as resilient technologies, then we can introduce aquaculture systems that uh, both mitigate storm surge that allow for um, food that that absorb water when it when a situation uh, of flood occurrence happens so that you're getting it also might be carbon sequestering so there's there's multiple different environmental as well as climate response scenarios happening at one time with one particular type of system Kind of touching on what you mentioned earlier about questioning or questioning sort of intentions that we've had in the past. I know also mm -hmm. in your book, which you also mentioned earlier in this interview, um, you bring up an important question about conservation. And you talk about in the book how conservation has probably failed us. Can you mm. elaborate on that or why is that? Yeah, I mean, I talked about cons conservation refugees earlier and you know, the model of conservation kind of came out of 
similar type of thinking as the Enlightenment. And and in the very beginning of the book, I discussed the uh, the Enlightenment Enlightenment as the moment when a whole set of decisions were made about where we were going to head for the next 500 years. And some of those decisions were about technology and, and, and they were contained within an environment and a time of colonialism. And, and so you have this lineage of technology that ignores indigenous systems. And you also have this lineage of conservation, which displaced indigenous communities because there was also a misunderstanding that Indigenous communities or Indigenous knowledge were not important to these different types of systems. So a really interesting example is like Yosemite National Park. The the, the Awanichi people were removed from Yosemite uh, when Europeans came through and, and so-called discovered Yosemite. They found this amazing landscape that was prairie land but the only reason that it was such a beautiful grassland is because indigenous people had been using fire technology and had actually been maintaining that whole landscape and it changed when the indigenous people were removed and that's a that's an occurrence that's happened all across the globe with this western framework of conservation as it's played out all over the world conservation has still you know been an, an incredible concept for attaining biodiversity and you know recreational landscapes and and natural or pristine as their so-called landscapes but they weren't always pristine they, you, a lot of those landscapes had people living in them beforehand and conservation really was that that catalyst for their removal from those landscapes but when you're talking about the idea of conservation failing i mean what we're talking about is you know a really good thing um that failed in some respects. And, you know, it wasn't like industrialization and conservation. If we're gonna choose one and say one was, you know, had a good impact and one had a bad impact, we would definitely say industrialization had a bad impact and conservation had a good impact. But there were a lot of things that conservation at the time, looking back, disrupted and, and, and didn't serve um, as well as it could have. And so that's sort of this argument about whether conservation has failed us. I mean, if the primary reason for conservation really was to retain biodiversity, we now understand that Indigenous people were stewards and, and were critical and, and are critical in retaining biodiversity because the nature-based technologies that they produce increase biodiversity in in these landscapes and so based upon that realization you know now is a point in time where we can really start to understand and critically uh look at conservation and evaluate what are the benefits of removing people from from landscapes how are they actually impacting those landscapes what is actual scientific fact and what are these lineages of biases and and you know colonial points of view and and races points of view that have kind of predicated a thinking that perhaps has is fundamentally flawed in some ways. So, you know, this argument, it's a double-edged sword in a way because, you know, the conservation movement has had an amazing impact globally on retaining lands, but also it can be blamed for some having some really large failures. 
I mean, there's a there's another discussion happening at this point in time where people are talking about, you know, nature-based solutions for climate change are forests and wetlands. But it's still within that same lineage of thinking that people can't be in those landscapes. And and my the whole book is about questioning that idea and saying, okay, maybe nature-based solutions can have people living in those landscapes. Maybe forests can be productive. Maybe wetlands can be productive. And there are hundreds of examples where human beings living in those landscapes, developing those landscapes in harmony and symbiosis with nature to be productive for both people and for other species work. So why do we have to keep within this paradigm of removing people from ecosystems to, re to preserve them or, or, or to mitigate climate change. That, that's like an unrealized potential and, and an ill-considered concept at this point in time in the climate change discussion. Thank you. What you said was really important. And also what you mentioned about Yosemite, uh, that hit me uh, because I grew up kind of near Yosemite and yeah. this narrative of the narrative of discovery was something that I heard growing up. So it's really important yeah. that you brought that up. I mean, what one other one other example? If, if I can just from my native country, Australia. Um, recently, I've been talking about the fires in Australia that's happened because, you know, the pyrotechnology the indigenous communities in Australia use has mitigated fire. The fires that happened in Australia literally went around the lands that still use cultural burning, and one of these sites that's like probably synonymous with. Yosemite is a place called Budgebim. It's in Victoria around a lake called Lake Condo. And it's an incredibly vast aquaculture system that was established by the Gurunjumara people six and a half thousand years ago. It, um, 23 and a half acres, 23 and a half thousand, sorry, acres of land that was changed and adapted with spillways and dikes and causeways and pools to capture this Kuyang eel. Indigenous people built stone houses in the area to live there. And when the British came through, there's literally a quote from one of the uh, government officials that says, this system looks like the work of a civilized man, yet we know it to be the work of Aboriginal natives. So there was this, this incredible under, misunderstanding uh, and, and the whole idea that Australia was able to be taken over by the Europeans is because they claimed this concept of terra nullis, which means land belonging to nobody. It's like an ancient Roman uh, understanding of, you know, nobody inhabits this land. It's based upon the fact that people haven't developed the land for agriculture, therefore you don't own it. But we know now like systems like Bajbim they had the Aboriginal people had completely and like completely re-engineered the landscape to capture eels and they lived there in stone houses, yet that was ignored. Budgebin was drained by the Europeans. It was uh, the cultural burning that they'd used to manage that landscape was outlawed by the government and the land was taken away from them. So the very like conception of you know, this colonialism and takeover of landscapes based upon this idea that it wasn't being productive because these people were hunter-gatherers or primitive is completely false. And it was 
proven over and over again that it was wrong and it was just completely ignored because it wasn't, it didn't serve the British to actually acknowledge these incredible feats of engineering and nature-based technologies, which the fires burnt away the bush and more and more and more of this landscape, this vast aquaculture system was revealed recently. And the properties that have been built over this aquaculture system were flooded and went underwater because when the floods recently came through, the whole system filled up. It was just this, this, these incredible images of this ignored, incredible, sophisticated feat of engineering by Indigenous people 6,000 years ago that was built, flooding to then flood the colonial farms that have been built over it. Exactly, yeah. I think it's definitely a great thing that you're bringing up these issues and that you're also applying it to how we can think about design in the future. Um, mm -hmm. Another important theme in the book is spirituality. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the chapters, you describe how the different methodologies of each group has kind of informed their ecological knowledge and practice. So why is this connection between spirituality and ecological knowledge so important? I mean, I think part of the reason why these indigenous technologies and this type of knowledge, which is traditional ecological knowledge, has really been ignored to this point in time in, by the scientific community is because the idea of spirituality and science existing in the same place um, and being symbiotic was, you know, that was another part of the enlightenment that spirituality or religion and science were at the opposite ends of the spectrum. But for communities that didn't have uh, um, that, well, that only had like a verbal transmission um, of information, the stories, the mythologies, all the ways that, um, that this knowledge could be passed down were through this spiritual uh, relationship to the landscape and the spiritual, the ceremonies and the stories about spirituality that would really contain all this detailed environmental information. So I often talk about um, the person who might be called the shaman. If we were to translate that into a contemporary context, we might call that like the environmental manager. So these relationships of spirituality um, in the landscape, in a lot of the work that I've been doing, really come back to understanding your ecosystem and, and that, that the spiritual landscapes that are preserved are often the most uh, ecologically uh, diverse. And so it's really about survival. So what we might consider, you know, a mountain or a river system as spiritual, the reason is because, you know, our, our human survival depends upon that. And giving it this type of understanding of spirituality and reverence is the type of reverence we would, you know, need to give to something that keeps us as a community alive. So there's like these very complex understandings. What's really interesting is that in these nature-based technologies, the spiritual stories and the relationship of spirituality to these systems, it's actually embedded in the technology and in the practices. So that type of knowledge is not just a story, it's a technology in itself. It's a knowledge base. It also is a view into the world and the relationships to your whole ecosystem in those stories. So there's 
So this idea, you know, I talk about this mythology of technology in the book and how human civilizations have really been moved by their mythologies and and these types of understandings about our place in the world. And Indigenous communities really, really um, subsist on these types of mythologies. And I think one of the issues that's happening now is that in our world, we don't really have a mythology to lean back on or to reference in in this movement forward with climate change. I think that that's part of what people are trying to arrive at. That's what, you know, this climate strike movement is is really calling for is like what is what is the story what is what is the the mythology that gathers us all all together and moves us in the direction that will allow us to get back to a place where we really have a really strong understanding of survival being incredibly dependent and symbiotic with our ecosystems and with our earth at Ecclesive, we also touch upon spirituality with ecological civilization. So just seeing the themes of spirituality in your book was something that really resonated with me. I guess kind of thinking about today's world and it's a world with a lot of mega cities and more and more people are living in cities. I live in a city with about 22 million people. Um, mm-hmm. So just kind of thinking about these mega global cities, how can we apply what we've learned in this book to urban design for global cities? Yeah, I mean, there's there's two answers to that question. The book isn't just about the idea of applying an indigenous technology in a remote location to a mega city. It, there's a really strong part of this book, which is a parable, which is really talking about like rethinking technology, getting back to indigenous understandings about our world to then arrive at a different place, a different understanding, new knowledge bases that we haven't really touched upon yet that will then lead to new types of technologies that then could be applied to our metropolises. There's also this idea that, you know, we've gone in such a direction of high tech and we've never really explored the opposite end of the spectrum, which is low tech. So even in that spectrum, we've just opened up so much more potential for hybridizing what could have an incredible ecological impact on the way we continue to develop in our global cities, in our second and third growth ring corridors, where we could apply a sewage-fed wastewater treatment system that's also providing jobs, lowering transportation costs of food, carbon mitigating, flood mitigating, water cleansing, growing vegetables, growing fish for our cities. Like those types of technologies could absolutely be applied to our mega cities. And the best example in the book and the most sort of the, a touch point for the book is the system in the East Calcutta wetlands. Um, Calcutta is a city of 15 million people and half of the sewage that comes from that city every single day, sewage from a population of 7 million people goes into a system called the East Calcutta wetlands, which is the largest wastewater fed aquaculture system on earth. And it's a system of, um, 300 fish farms that are produced by local farmers and it provides 80,000 jobs for the city. It saves the city $22 million in operating costs if they were to be operating, not constructing, but just operating per annum 
a sewage wastewater treatment plant. It provides, you know, 16% of the city's fish. It provides thousands of tons of fruit and vegetables and rice for the city. It retain it, you know, it reduces costs for fertilizer and irrigation. If the city were to pay for a fertilizer and irrigation for all those crops. So that is a system which is in a metropolis, in a mega city, and it's working to for free to uh, process the sewage wastewater and clean the water and provide all these fruits, so all these co-benefits. So that type of thinking is where we can start to apply. And imagine if we were to think about like hybridizing that with the contemporary material technologies or governance systems or construction methods or you know, that, that type of a system, you could apply that to Los Angeles. You could apply it to the outer growth ring of Washington. You could do it in New York City. So it's not that, it's just a, a you know, a really reorienting the way we're even thinking of cities and, and the possibilities of these nature-based technologies that could be implemented at large scales. Thank you so much. And that's something that we definitely try to transmit in Ecosave is that we think about reorienting or revisioning, thinking of other structural ways that we can structure society um, mm -hmm. into being a more sustainable world for everybody. Yeah. And, last, and everything. And everything, exactly. Lastly, I wanted to ask if there's anything that you wanted to add or anything that you think our listeners would be interested in about the book? Yeah, I mean, I think that one part of the book that is probably not as pronounced um, at this point in time, but that you know, we really need to address after being in Mozambique last week and also you know, working in Indonesia, there are so many places around the world that don't realize the incredible potential of their own indigenous technologies because they look to, you know, America or the Netherlands or, you know, Japan or any other sort of uh, first world countries and see them as advanced. And I think that, you know, we need to recondition our understanding of what is advanced and, and what is innovative and not only rethink of it from our metropolitan cities, but also in our developed cities, but in, in developing cities, we need to really address the fact that, you know, there are first world nations and companies going in to these uh, cities in developing countries and telling them how to plan for climate change and what infrastructures to build to make them their cities more resilient. And a lot of the time, just around the corner, there are resilient systems that might be seen as agricultural landscapes, and there's untapped potential that is not being realized as a local indigenous nature-based technology that could be advanced as an incredibly resilient technology for that particular space. So, you know, the Netherlands, they have a polder dike system, which they have used for hundreds of years since the 13th century, where they have been keeping the sea at bay. But the Chinese have their version and the Indonesians have their version. So there is, off, there is no need for developing countries to be buying these advanced high-tech systems from developed countries in this you know, climate resilience movement. What needs to be realized is that there are incredibly local indigenous resilient systems 
and that developing countries don't have to make the same mistakes as developed countries to follow that lineage of industrialization to then end up in the same place as we've ended up. And we you know, now know that, that this lineage of development is just one way, and it's not the only way that human beings can develop because there are hundreds of examples that are still in existence of how to live in a very different way with nature and with our, with our natural systems. And that's what we need to realize and that's what we need to address. And as designers, it's a very significant role that we have to play at this point in time to share knowledge and to learn as well, to not think that we have all the knowledge that we need uh, to fulfill, you know, the mission that we have to accomplish with climate change. But there is so much knowledge and so much technology out there that we can learn from, from Indigenous communities, if we change the lens through which we look. Well, thank you so much, Julia. Your book is definitely beautiful and it was a pleasure having you on our show. Thank you so much, Evelyn.